Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Hello and welcome to this uh, talk today, which is, uh, as you just saw, in, um, uh, co-sponsored by the University of Cambridge. Um, a subject very close to my heart, and I've just been having great fun uh, talking to Hugh. You're in for a treat, I can tell you. Um, although it might be a slightly alarming treat, I have to say. Um, so uh, many of you will probably know Hugh Hunt from uh, his Channel 4 documentaries. He's uh, Dam Busters and Escape from Colditz and Digging the Great Escape. He was just telling me about what it actually felt like to dig the tunnels and put the, put the soil in his trousers. So, um, uh, and so you might say, what on earth <laughs> is he doing here now? And uh, Hugh, of course, is a reader in engineering dynamics and vibrations in the, uni- in the uh, Department of Engineering at Cambridge really knows his stuff. But the thing that really motivates him is how do engineers solve really big problems? And that's why he was doing these documentaries for Channel 4. How do, you, how do you make bouncing bombs? Um, how, how might engineers help to do something like that? How do, you, how do you make zeppelins? And he says that now he's been thinking about how do engineers solve probably the biggest and most important problem, challenge, whatever you want to call it, that we have today, which is something very close to my heart, which is dealing with climate change. So um, obviously engineers can help with wind and solar and all those things, but what if that's not enough? So this is Hugh to talk to us about refreezing the Arctic. Hugh, over to you. Great, thanks very much. Well, I, yeah, I got into I got into thinking about climate change through wind turbines and wave power, and I got pretty depressed that these things weren't happening fast enough. And I'm really thrilled now that. Wind turbines, wave power, tidal power, electric cars, these things are now happening quickly. But I do feel it's just, it might just be a bit too late. And I just want to talk to you about some ideas that we've got about um, what we might do if we fail to deal with climate change properly. Now, I've just a bit of background. Many of you will have seen these things, but if you haven't, you really need to. Um, this shows the last, well, roughly about a million years worth of data of carbon dioxide concentration in uh, what's called parts per million. And it goes up and down and up and down and up and down over the last million years. And you've got ice ages and you've got warm periods, ice ages, warm period. This is the last ice age. Um, This is where humans started to appear. The ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans, the ancient Egyptians. But CO2 levels are currently um, higher now than they've been for a million years. Um, And that's the worry. We are entering into the unknown. Now, if we think about what that CO2 means, this is a a nighttime view of our planet, and you'll see all those dots, white dots, that's where their cities, where light light is. And that's where people live. And if you think about it, that's where CO2 is generated. And this is a map of CO2 on the uh, planet. So that this colour code, this is puffs of CO2 coming out of the uh, out of the earth, and you can just see that wherever there's lots of people, there's lots of CO2. There's just so little doubt at all that the CO2 is our problem and our problem alone. And how does that relate to temperature? 
Well, this is since 1880, the last 120 years or so of temperature rise. And temperature's been rising. This is the, called the temperature anomaly, the difference between now and some reference temperature. And that reference temperature was in the 1880s, 1890s. Um, some people talk about this, um, this pause. Uh, well, you know, that is... If you use that as your reference temperature, then each year you could say, oh, look, cooler, 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 cooler. That's a blip. Cooler, cooler, blip. Cooler, cooler, cooler. You can get 17 years in a row, more or less, that's cooler than your reference. But I like to think of this as, imagine if you've, you or a friend or a relative has got uh, cancer, let's say, terrible thing to have, but this might be your uh, PSA count. And at this stage here, you think, oh, look, this is looking good. But you don't say I'm cured. You just say, well, maybe I've got a few more years with my grandchildren. And that's the way we've got to look at it. This isn't something to cheer about because this is where we are now. Um, another way of looking at it is um, over the last uh, um, 120 years, let's look at a decade at a time. So this is the 1890s. These are temperatures of around the planet. And we see that you know, blue is a bit cool and yellow and red are a bit warm. And as you move through the decades, the um, temperatures around the planet are rising. And then it's only really when you get to the 1980s, 1990s, 2002, and now 2012, to this decade, that you realise that the whole planet is warming up, but the worst part is up here, the Arctic. And the Arctic is way, way, way warmer than the rest of the... The, the, the average warming in the Arctic is more than anywhere else. Now, if you look at forecasts, models that we've been doing and others have been doing, looking at going ahead to 2090, um, using what's called a business-as-usual model. There's lots of uh, TLAs, three-letter acronyms. <laughs> um, so this BAU is um, business-as-usual uh, 20-degree warming in the northern ice cap. Well, I mean, that just that means that the ice all melts. The Greenland ice sheet melts. The, uh, everything just gets hot. New York, plus eight degrees. Uh, the Amazon, plus eight degrees. And there's the COP21 Paris Agreement talking about let's keep temperature rise to within one and a half degrees. Well, business as usual isn't going to achieve that. Um, so let's look at that ice thing. Now, this graph is um, really worth uh, coming to terms with. This shows time along the bottom from 1980 to roughly now. This is 2000. 16 data, I think, and um, it's, uh, it shows in cubic kilometres, so cubic kilometres is a big number, <laughs> but it shows how much ice there is floating in the Arctic. And this shows the maximum amount, 30,000 cubic kilometres. I mean, it's an unimaginably big number, but it's, it's how much ice there is floating in the Arctic. And this figure, this line here shows how much melt there is each year. So if this is how much you've got 
in the winter, and this is how much melts, then the difference between them is how much you've got left in the summer. And ordinarily, this line would carry on over here somewhere, and this blue line would carry over here somewhere, and every summer would be much the same as every other summer. But as you can see, we've got less and less ice in the winter, and more and more melt in the spring, and well, we haven't got a crystal ball. We don't know for sure what's going to happen. But the fear is that these two lines will cross somewhere in about five years' time and we'll have, uh, we will have lost ice coverage in the summer in the Arctic. Now, there are various people who looked at this a few years ago and, of course, didn't have this recent data and it kind of looked like that was going to happen you follow the lines here, you might have forecast it was going to happen in 2014. And climate scientists, some climate scientists did say we were going to lose summer ice in 2014. And of course, they got it wrong, and they are now being told, oh, look, you don't know what you're talking about. You can't make, you know, if you can't forecast these things correctly, you, you're obviously not a, a genuine scientist. But the difference between 2014 in 2021, it's only seven years. Um, it's, it, who, who really cares? It's a big problem. So what are the issues? The Arctic problem is that if the Arctic ice uh, becomes open water, then this thing called albedo, which is reflectivity, drops from 0.6 to 0.1. Now, albedo, we all know what it's like when you're out on a sunny day. If you're wearing pale-coloured clothing, white clothing you feel cool, but if you're wearing black, well, that's what you want to wear on a nice winter's, summer's day, you know, to, to, to absorb the heat. Well, if you look at this picture of floating ice, there's huge, great big sheets of white. They reflect the sunlight really well, but these dark sea bits absorb the sunlight. And it turns out that sums have been done that if the Arctic becomes ice-free, you've got... Um, the equivalent of about 25 years' worth of, of, uh, of CO2 emissions if we lose the Arctic ice in the summer. Um, now, once we start to lose that Arctic ice, then, well, there's no guarantee that this will happen, but there are concerns, real concerns. Underneath the Arctic ice and in the northern Arctic regions, there's a lot of uh, locked-up, a ancient um, organic matter which has stored up methane and CO2 and other greenhouse gases and as that ice melts out comes this methane. Now methane is a much more potent greenhouse gas. Um, this is an illustration, it's a lake in Canada, this is not meant to be anything other than for fun but it, it just shows that there is methane under there. Break a hole in the ice in the lake and, and put a match to it, you get it, it burns. Well, let's suppose all of the methane in the Arctic were to, to be released. Well, it's a real problem. It, it could spell what's called sort of runaway um, uh, climate change where we, we, we don't recover from that. So um, what happens then is that this Greenland ice shelf which holds uh, two million cubic kilometres of ice, so that's a big number. Um, you don't, it's, it's about two kilometres high. 
the height of the ice in the Greenland ice shelf is uh, you know, a third the highest height of, um, of Mount Everest. Um, if it melts, if it all melts, put that all around the planet, we get seven metres sea level rise. Um, and the other thing that happens is the uh, ice-free Arctic changes uh, weather patterns. We've got these jet streams that blow around in the, in the northern hemisphere, and they help to moderate our climate. And if that jet stream starts to behave erratically, well, it already is, but if it really behaves erratically, then we get lots of problems with rainfall and with climate and with agriculture, with crops, with just normal life. So there's a lot, of, uh, lot to worry about. Sea level rise, well, here we are at um, Hayon Wai. We're up at 90 metres. Um, uh, where I'm from, uh, we're down at 10 metres. Where our uh, politicians are, they're down at 6 metres. Where I grew up, uh, it's down at 4 metres. Um, sea level rise of 7 metres would have a big impact. And you might think, well, let's live here. Lovely place. Um, but the problem is, all those Sainsbury's lorries that bring your stuff to the supermarkets around the corner, they've got to go through places which are down at lower levels. And all the, all the agriculture, all the, the things that you rely on every day, have to, uh, they, they're transported from around the world, and sea level rise will just screw everything up. So we've got to be really careful not to think, oh, well, we'll just move to higher land. And, of course, we might be fortunate enough to be able to afford to move somewhere uh, where we can escape the problems of sea level rise. But the, the planet with 7 billion people is not mostly not um, so lucky. Um, here we have a, a picture from 1850, roughly showing how CO2 emissions have risen over time. Uh, the, the globally, we're producing something like 35 billion tonnes a year. That's another big number. But if we divide by the world population of 7 billion, that gives an average of 5 tonnes per year of CO2 per person. Now, that's an average globally. In the UK, the average is about 12 tonnes of CO2 per person. So you guys have probably all around average or probably a bit higher than average, I don't know. I know that I'm higher than average. But think of this number, five tonnes even, or 12, whatever, tonnes of CO2. I reckon that I'm responsible for about maybe half a tonne of garbage at home per year, probably a bit less than that. Uh, all you have to do is look at the stuff you put in the bin every week and just get a feel for it. The idea that I'm measuring CO2 in tonnes per person per year, 10 tonnes per person per year, that, that doesn't feel right because I know what a pain it is to have to take the garbage out, uh, but this isn't a pain at all. I don't notice it. Why don't we notice it? Well, if I fly to Australia, which I do every now and then, I generate about five tonnes of CO2 and I don't notice it. Why don't I notice it? Well, because no one tells me. Let's have a look. Here I am, I arrive at Sydney Airport and I'm picking up my case and I think, hmm, CO2. Let's imagine I had to pick up a suitcase with my CO2 in it. 20 kilograms, so I'm going to walk away. I've got my 20 kilogram suitcase with all my pyjamas and stuff in it and this other suitcase with my CO2 in it. How many of those 20 kilogram suitcases, the white ones, 
do I need to pick up? Well, there's some that you can do for yourself. You say, well, a plane burns fuel at about four kilograms per second. You can check that up on the internet. It's more or less right. And uh, it's a 20-hour flight to Sydney. There's about 350 passengers, let's say. And every kilogram of fuel generates three kilograms of CO2. That's because carbon combines with oxygen to provide, to make CO2. Um, so you do the sum, number of suitcases. You, you have to multiply all these things up and divide them. And you end up with 125 suitcases. Now, who is ever told this? Well, the airline companies are certainly not going to tell you. And the oil companies are not going to tell you. And governments who are interested in... Uh, promoting the, the, the well-being, the, the prosperity of, of a country by having, much, having people travelling to the country want to build third runways at Heathrow Airport. Well, that all makes sense until you think about this. So when are we going to have a mindset to think about this? No, we think about, oh, here I am at Sydney. How lovely. Let me pick up my suitcase and go and see my family. All right, so that's the situation we're in. We're in a, in a situation of largely of denial and also of lack of information. There's not many people are being made aware of the issue. So um, we're going up this curve of uh, emitting CO2, and it doesn't seem to have mattered. You know, things that have happened over the last 100 years hasn't slowed this down at all. There's a very, very slight possibility that things are looking good, that little thing here that's just happened in the last two or three years, let's not get our hopes up because this is where we've got to go, really. We've got to be net zero CO2 by 2055. That's if we're going to meet the Paris Agreement. And the Paris Agreement actually isn't telling us what to do at all. It's telling us what we would like to achieve. Um, so, you know, it's like it's, we all have New Year's resolutions, but actually achieving them is always harder. So this green line here isn't going to be straightforward. So I've mentioned this word geoengineering, and geoengineering is active control of the climate. In other words, we're not going to stop flying and we're not going to stop driving our cars, we're not going to stop heating our homes. So how are we going to stop the Arctic from melting? Implicit in the Paris Agreement, but it's not written down, is this thing called uh, um, BECS. Negative Emissions Technology is another way, word for it, NET, but it's bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. Now, there's lots of acronyms. Uh, so there it is, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. There's um, carbon dioxide removal. There's solar radiation management. I just want to talk you through these things. This is where we're getting into the engineering ideas that might be used to help us uh, refreeze the Arctic, keep the planet cool. Now, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage says, let's plant lots of trees, lots of crops, and instead of burning coal, oil and gas in our power stations, we're going to burn trees and uh, uh, biomass and then, instead of letting the uh, carbon dioxide escape into the atmosphere, we're going to capture it and store it underground somewhere. Well, we're talking about 35 billion tonnes a year of this stuff. That's quite a lot. 
and the technology doesn't exist yet. Well, it does exist in small test facilities, but it doesn't, it's not ready to go. So the idea that we can rely on this now just isn't sensible. But it's, um, it's apparently what we have to do. Negative emissions technologies are the way forward. I don't believe it for a minute. Um, we have to do it because we've got to get CO2 out of the atmosphere eventually. So what other ways of getting are there for getting CO2 out of the atmosphere? There's um, these CDR technologies, carbon dioxide removal. Ocean fertilisation, can we put into the oceans materials that make plankton grow quicker, that make uh, that, that increases the, the bioactivity of the oceans? Well, yes, we ought to be thinking about that, but that's going to take decades to, to, to get working and for it to be safe. We've got to be really careful that things have got to be safe. Um, another one is this thing called biochar, where, okay, we take our trees and let's not bother about generating electricity with them. Let's turn the trees into charcoal and bury the charcoal. Kind of think, well, why did we take the bloody oil out of the ground in the first place? Um, but that's, that's, that's the way we do it. Um, and, uh, and, 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 of course, the, uh, just generally planting trees is a good idea. But these things will take time, and we're not really... We haven't got our heart in this at all. Um, so where I've been looking mostly is this thing called the solar radiation management. And this will only deal with uh, uh, temperature change, uh, cooling the planet. It doesn't deal with the problem of having lots of CO2 in the atmosphere, which you get ocean acidification, you get other problems with CO2 in the atmosphere. But if our prime objective is to keep the planet cool, then how about we reflect some sunlight? And this is what we do if we're on a hot day, we will you know, we'll have a parasol or something to reflect sunlight to keep ourselves cool. Um, we might even put some sun, sunscreen on to, uh, to reflect, absorb what, whatever we do with UV light to stop ourselves from getting sunburned. Well, these are the things that are being thought about. So let's look at some of these. We can increase reflectivity from the oceans. So we know the oceans, when the waves break, you see the white foam. Well, can we make the oceans just a little bit foamier? That's a good idea. Let's give it a go. Um, plenty of people thinking about that. Uh, we could make clouds a bit cloudier. You know, can we make clouds a bit whiter? So it's um, marine cloud brightening is another name for this. Uh, and we can spray salt water up into the, uh, into the air, and that helps to uh, create more clouds. All right, that's not bad. Um, the very high-altitude clouds, um, it turns out that they act as a, a blanket. They act to uh, keep heat in, so we could thin those out. Um, we could plant crops that are whiter crops, and maybe genetically engineer crops are the ones we'd we already have lots of, so that they're a little bit whiter to reflect more light. Um, we could scatter reflective particles in deserts to increase reflectivity from deserts. But all of these things, in my view, are, are just too difficult to achieve on the scale we need. And the one that looks most promising is this one up here, 
increased reflectivity from aerosols pumped into the atmosphere. And it turns out that you don't need very much to create a cooling effect by pumping stuff into the atmosphere. Um, so if you, um, if you think back to the imperative of achieving this Paris Agreement of 1.5 degrees, we have to think of a pathway to get there. It's no good just saying, oh, well, we'll figure out a way. Now, the business as usual takes us up this curve here. This is time along here. This is eight, the, before the 1900s. This is forecasting up to a century and a, uh, or more from where we are. The Paris Agreement wants us to be trundling along this line here within two degrees or thereabouts of what's called pre-industrial temperatures. And that implies a large amount of carbon dioxide removal. And even if we only do a moderate amount of carbon dioxide removal, we'll get to three degrees. If we do none at all, well, there's our business as usual curve, which is the eight degrees that I was showing you before. Putting particles up into the stratosphere, the high atmosphere is the stratosphere, solar radiation management, well, we know that that's what volcanoes do. And you can look at past episodes. The most recent big one was in 1991, Mount Pinatubo um, in the Philippines, and it, its eruption put stuff way, way up into the atmosphere. The stuff it put up there was sulfuric acid. Um, sounds terrible, but that's what it did. And you can see this is a, a picture taken in 1984 and roughly from the same place just after the eruption of Pinatubo, you can see there are things going on in the atmosphere uh, after the eruption. And you, t you look closely at what's going on. These tiny droplets of sulfuric acid, they happen to be the same diameter roughly as the wavelength of light. And if you've got light travelling through air which is full of these little particles of the same size as the wavelength of light, you get scattering. And it caused a half a degree cooling, perhaps a three quarters of a degree cooling, this eruption, over a period of about a year. Can we do the same thing? It's, it's a natural process. Can we do the same thing as engineers? Can we do it? Well, the first thing we want to do is to figure out how much of this stuff needs to to uh, be pumped up there, and then to figure out ways of doing it, and then, of course, to figure out whether it's safe or not. Well, uh, the amount of stuff, um, well, it's a lot, uh, but not a huge amount. I mean, it's 10 million tonnes a year. It's the kind of amount we need to put up there to get a two-degree cooling. cooling. Um, 10 million tonnes a year might sound a lot, but compared with 35 billion tonnes a year that we're doing with CO2, it's not that much. But it's pretty controversial stuff. The project I was involved with, SPICE, Stratospheric Particle Injection for Climate Engineering, started in, the, in about 2010. We ran the project for about five years, and we were looking at the idea of having a balloon, maybe 10 of them around the world, up at 20 kilometres, compl completely crazy idea, but then we can pump this stuff up and spray it out 
up at 20 kilometers. Other people are looking at other technologies like aircraft or airships, missiles, and so on. If you look at all these ideas and you think, well, how long will they take to develop and what might they cost, what you realize is that all of these crazy ideas, including this tethered balloon one, the cost isn't that great. I mean, a nuclear power station costs 10 billion pounds thereabouts. So if we have some um, world leader who perhaps thinks a bit rashly and says, well, yeah, we can solve this. Let's, let's, just, let's just pump sulfuric acid into the atmosphere. It's cheap. Let's do it. Well, okay, let's do it. The thing is, it's pretty scary, and we don't know if it's going to be safe. So part of our project, the SPICE project, was to look at how safe things would be. But unfortunately, back in 2012, our project was cancelled because it was deemed to be controversial. And it was cancelled because of issues about patents and intellectual property, and it was cancelled because of issues of stakeholder engagement and public perceptions and so on. And, okay, but what happens if somebody suddenly says, oh, let's do it? People are going to be asking, why hadn't we started doing any research on this earlier? Well, we did try. But I'll tell you what, the thing that really annoys me about this article in New Scientist is that, well, which way do you reckon the wind is blowing in this picture? <laughs> <laughs> it makes you realise that, oh God, every, so I now look at New Scientist and I try to find the mistakes. And that's, God, it's terrible. Because... It turns out that uh, you'll get a really nice article for New Scientist. And, of course, it has to be trimmed down to fit into the space available. So I asked them, look, why did you do this? And they said, well, if we'd had the plume going out the other side, it would have taken more space. <laughs> and, and no one's going to notice. Well, that's fine. Okay. Uh. I don't think anyone did notice. But, um, so, look, if we're going to um, say, all right, we won't spray stuff into the stratosphere because it's too risky, it's d d sulfuric acid in the... No, don't do it. Um, I don't, I don't want to do it. I'd like to think we could get CO2 out of the atmosphere. Well, the problem with getting CO2 out of the atmosphere, do you remember this figure, 35 billion tonnes per year? Well, that is, um, if, you, if you work that out per second, we are pumping CO2 into the atmosphere globally a million kilograms of the stuff per second. That's what the human race is doing. Um, and that's two cubic kilometres of CO2 per hour. Now, if we want to get it out again, because it's fairly dilute in the atmosphere, we have to suck air into these machines if we build them. We have to suck air into these machines at a cubic kilometre per second. A cubic kilometre, so I walk for about three hours in that direction, 10 kilometres. I walked for three hours in that direction and 10 metres up. That air is a cubic kilometre. And every second, I've got to suck that air in and I've got to take the CO2 out of it and I've got to bury it somewhere. We're not going to do that, right? We're not going to do that. So where I'm interested in making some progress, is in other gases. And this is where I think we've got some hope. Because, okay, CO2 is an important greenhouse gas, 
But there's other gases. There's methane, there's nitrous oxide, there's this refrigerant, CFC12, you might remember the hole in the ozone layer, that was caused by these refrigerants. And there's a, another three-letter acronym that's worth coming to grips with, it's this one, Global Warming Potential. And it tells you that CO2, that's the reference level, has a global warming potential of one. Methane has a global warming potential of 86 over a 20-year period. That means that a certain amount of methane will heat the atmosphere by 86 times as much, if it's methane, than CO2. Nitrous oxide, you might have been reading just the last few days about concerns about nitrous oxide bubbling up out of the Arctic. It has a global warming potential of 268. But the concentrations, this is parts per million again, are much lower. But with time, nitrous oxide is going to become increasingly problematic, methane increasingly problematic. So I reckon if we can't remove CO2, it's really worth looking at methane and nitrous oxide. The key thing here is that you can convert methane into CO2. You convert nitrous oxide into nitrogen oxygen. You convert one gas into another gas. No need for that sequestration business. No need to store these things underground. So what you do is you come up with a technology which actually was around in the 1980s. These are called solar updraft towers. And a solar updraft tower for greenhouse gas removal, that's our new acronym. Well, the idea is that the air, hot air, you, get, you heat up the air in these greenhouses. This is what it looks like underneath. And air gets sucked in and hot air rises up the chimney like this. And if you coat this uh, plastic or glass, whatever it might be, with a thin layer of catalyst and use the UV light from the sun, you can convert methane and nitrous oxide into other gases. And these things can go into spaces that are not used for other purposes, like deserts or, or uh, you know, in the Gibson Desert in Australia or the Gobi Desert or wherever you like. And uh, they don't need electricity to run them. And they don't need pipes to sequester stuff. Um, OK, you need big towers, but we build big towers. Um, we need large areas. Uh, well, you know. We wouldn't do it in France. France is quite <laughs> nice. And notice I chose not to use the word Wales on this occasion. Uh. But, um, <clears throat> um, it's a big area, but a seven-metre sea level rise is a big problem too. So it's really important to be thinking of technologies, and they're technologies that need... We need engineers, not just scientists, but we need engineers on board to be helping to come up with practical solutions, not silly solutions. So that's a little walking tour of my thought processes. So where am I at with the thinking? Can we refreeze the Arctic? Well, yes. Let's pump sulfuric acid into the atmosphere. Are we going to do that? Well, I don't think we are because um, I just think it would be too controversial. We should, we should refreeze the Arctic. Or at least we should stop the Arctic from melting. If the Arctic melts, can we deal with the rise of methane? And that's where the, uh, this new project comes in. You get it? Spice, sugar.
So, <laughs> um, my real problem is I don't think we can handle sea level rise, and that's what we're in for with the uh, melting of the Greenland ice shelf. I've not talked at all about the Antarctic. The Antarctic ice, that's going to be around for much longer, but hundreds of years. But I don't know. We'd like to think that there's more human race than just the next few hundred years. So look, on that cheerful note, I'm going to stop now, and uh, thank you very much for listening to my talk. <laughs> Thanks very much, Hugh. So, so hands up who's feeling depressed by that. Oh. <laughs> hands up who's feeling excited about the possibilities of what engineers can do. I am, actually. <laughs> good, you see? So you've done something to help yeah, cheer good, us up good, at the good. same time, which is great. Um, I've got loads of questions, but I imagine that you guys do as well. So I'm going to go straight to you. And uh, we straight away have a one here, and uh, that will take the one at the back there, and then we'll go to the next ones over there. Thank you. Um, thank you for a quite terrifying talk. <laughs> um, I have a very personal interest in what you're saying, because I live on the Bristol Channel, the place called Watch It. My deck ends at the sea wall, and over the last 17 years, we have a 12-metre rise now in our tide there, and that has increased considerably in the time that I've been living there. So I'm very, very well aware of what's going on. The thing that's terrified me is my lack of information. When you showed those pictures of the CO2 and airlines, I sat here and thought, Christ almighty, in what other ways am I individually contributing to CO2 besides my liking for air travel? And I wondered if, although this is a primary school question, whether you very quickly tell me the areas of my life that I ought to look at to reduce my own personal behaviour and encourage others also. Well, that's a, that is a great question. And it's a, it's a question which I can answer actually quite quickly because working out your carbon footprint is really difficult. And here's a simple way to do it. 12 tonnes per year is... UK average, divide that up into six sixths. So two tonnes for six things. And those six things are car travel, air travel, um, food, heating your house, electricity, and buying stuff. So six sixths. And unfortunately, half of each of those, you cannot change. The fact that we even though you might not fly at all, the fact that there are airports in Britain is why Britain is a prosperous country. The fact that there are roads um, is why Britain is a prosperous country. So half of the carbon footprint is like a baseline. If you don't like that, then you've got to go and live in Bangladesh. You know, that's, that's the message. Live somewhere which doesn't have this infrastructure. But the other half, flying is 100 kilograms per hour of flying. And so you get to your, your one tonne is the average. So 10 hours of flying, that's the average. If you're flying more than 10 hours a year, then you're above average. Driving, if you're driving more than about... Um, uh, the figure on top of my head is about 40 hours per year um, with two people in the car, then 
that's average. I think that's about right. Something like that. Um, uh, you, uh, you, it's hard not to be around average. Heating your home, if you've got a big empty house with lots of leaky windows, then you'll be above average. But if your house is, if your bills are reasonable, then, and you'll know if they're reasonable, then there's not much you can do about gas and electricity. Um, and probably, unless you're a, a, a ridiculous meat eater, um, if you're an average meat eater, you're average, you can become a vegan. Um, and that helps. But the big ones are living in Britain, <laughs> living in a prosperous country. That's the, that's the problem. Living in a prosperous country. And then those of you who fly more than 10 hours a year and those of you who drive more than um, 40 hours... Not done? I don't mean... For, don't, those of you who drive... I've got to get the figures right. But if you are driving a lot and flying a lot, <laughs> that's where you can cut down. I'm going to add a, another one to that as well, which I, I hope might be helpful. And, you know, I completely agree, except if you go and live in Bangladesh, you probably live in a part of Bangladesh that has the infrastructure. And there is, in the countries that have a very low per capita um, uh, emissions, that there's still a, a relatively small number of prosperous people who have large per capita mm. emissions, and then a lot of people who have very, very low ones, and that's why it averages out. But food waste is a, is a, a, a big and important yeah. one. It's extraordinary the amount of food that gets wasted, even before it gets as far as you by the whole process from the farms to the supermarkets to whatever. And a lot of, a, a lot of uh, businesses are, are trying to deal with that now, partly because it's uh, for the emissions and partly because it's expensive. But even when it comes to our, our homes as well, any time you're throwing out food, that food has been created and the process by which it's been created and transported has, has produced a lot of emissions. So the, the less you throw out, the less you waste, the less you're contributing to that as well. Um, so there's a gentleman up here and then there's one down here. Hi, thank you very much for that. Very interesting. And could I just follow up on this, on the, on the lack of information, how difficult it is to get information? Um, one thing is that chart that you showed early on, showing temperature rise over the last, what is it, 100, 100 years or so, um, actually is actually or has been quite difficult to get at um, on, on websites. You used to be able to get it at the, at the, on the Met Office website if you knew how to do it. Um, but it seemed to me it was sat on by a lot of the people who were uh, sort of looking to climate change. And what they didn't want is, if you go back two or three years, they didn't want the general public to see that pausing area for fear that they would say, well, it's all over. That's what Nigel Lawson did. So, no, what's the problem? You know, it's all, it's all stopped. And it's... And it's obviously not simple to predict the actual rise in temperature because you can see that very high rise. It's 1941, I think it was, was the high, was the, the warmest year, and wasn't exceeded until I think we're talking about the mid 60s or thereabouts. So, 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 what's your question, sir? The question is, 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 should we have more information? Should should that graph, if you like, have been more publicised, and and should it have been explained better? by the people who actually knew what was going on. is clearly a difficult issue. Sure, thank well, you. I would say absolutely, we, mm. we need more information. But um, and the thing that really got me when I first did the sum, I didn't believe it. I've been going home to Australia for, for a long time. It didn't occur to me, why should it? It didn't occur to me that, that uh, it was a problem. Why should it be a problem? That, for me, it just shocked me. And this isn't difficult. That calculation isn't difficult. Why are we not being given the information? Well, 
So we've got to change, we've got to change the, uh, our, the way we have to trust the people who do these things for us, fly us places, to, 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 to give us the information. The information isn't, isn't that difficult. Oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Information is so important. Sure, thanks. Gentleman here. Uh, thank you, you. Um, uh, thank you for speaking out for engineers. Uh, as one who spent much of my early career re-engineering air conditioning systems to get rid of CFC-12, um, uh, it, it is hard work. But um, the question I have is, um, this isn't a problem. You know, it's not about engineers solving problems. This is a wicked challenge, yeah? It's, it's much bigger than a problem. And to solve wicked challenges, and that's where my innovation effort is going at the moment, working with countries to overcome their biggest challenges. Last year I was working with the Dubai government to re-engineer their economy. Uh, what, what it strikes me is we have to have more than engineers. We have to have the scientists. Mm. We have to have the politicians. Mm. We have to have the philanthropists. We have to have the public uh, engaged in these things. Uh, it's a collective challenge that we have to overcome. Given the fact that you know the USA has just walked away from the Paris Agreement, um, there is no uh, virtual conversation uh, in, in the policies about this election. How do we engage mm. these people uh, to, to bring this to a solution? It's really okay. hard. And I mean, I'm, I'm here for that purpose. And it's really hard to... to I, uh, it's interesting, I've, I gave this talk, a, a similar talk, a couple of weeks ago, and there were a couple of uh, politicians there. The politicians didn't know this. So, I mean, <laughs> there they are saying, oh, we're doing everything we can for climate change. They're as ignorant uh, as, of these numbers as anybody else. So, uh, yes, engaging, there's a bit of the shock tactics of... You've got to know what the scale of the problem is, and you've got to know what it is, what your share of the problem is, and that actually you can do something. Um, you know, if we all stop eating beef, or, you know, beef on special occasions, that's going to make a difference. If we all stop flying, then that's going to make a difference. It's no good just waiting for somebody else to do that for us. So, yeah, it's... <laughs> You're right, it's a big problem, and I don't know what more to say on that. I, I, I'll, I'll follow up. Um, in fact, I'll be talking a little bit about this when I do my bit later, <laughs> or a follow-up, um, uh, taking the baton and running with it, and I do a reformation about climate change. But I would say thank you for bringing out that it is a collective problem, and that what I loved about what you said uh, here in your talk is really bringing the engineering mindset as part of the whole, not saying this is the way that we fix everything, but this is one of the things that we're going to need to have in place uh, collectively with all the rest. I would say that in my experience of, of trying to bring this message to people for the best part of 20 years, I thought at first that what you do is you give people information, you give people facts, and that's not enough. And I thought if you frighten people, if you scare them, if you show the scale of it, and it turns out that if you frighten people, it shuts them down, including me. And so I think that the trick, the thing that we need to do most now, and I will be talking a bit more about this later, is do what Hugh just did, which is paint a big, inspiring vision. This is what we're reaching for. 
And if you do that, you get a much better uh, uh, story and you get a much better inroad into all the people you're trying to reach. So there's someone with a, has the microphone in there. Yes, thanks. Hello. Um, I was wondering what your perspective is on offsetting. So does it genuinely reduce those suitcases or are we just deluding ourselves that we can continue to fly around the world and not change our lifestyles? Well, offsetting is, is one of these things that... I just want to see people do the sums of it. Okay, how do I offset this? Okay. I have to offset two and a half tonnes, that's just the one I say, five tonnes of CO2. Now, that's just for me. And the plane, all the 350 people, we're talking, it's just not, it doesn't make sense. And I suspect if you actually sat down and looked at the offsetting scam, I'm sure it is a scam, that these trees are being multiply counted. You know, they're sold off. For Let's offset this. You pay your £2.50 to offset your, your carbon footprint. But that same tree probably will never be planted and it's been sold to 5,000 other people. Um, then that tree, what's going to happen when that tree is fully grown? It doesn't... Yeah, look, I'm depressed about that. So um, I don't know the answer, but I think it's a scam. It's a big scam. <laughs> In my opinion, it might not be, but someone knows then... <laughs> I, some, some of them are, some of them might not be. And, and there's also, it's not just planting trees. It can also be, uh, you, can, you can actually have the money invested in, in schemes that will ch switch to renewable energy in certain countries. So but we're so talking 35 billion tonnes a year. Yeah. So we need big time yeah, offsetting. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the yeah. issue. So. So, so, lady here, and then... Uh, Where's we'll the microphone? Go? Over. Where's yeah. the... Who's got the microphone? Okay, so yeah. we'll go here and then over there. Yes, sorry, here first. Anyway. No, no, yes, yes. Oh, no, yeah. sorry, yeah. <laughs> Right. First of all, um, I think there's a... I feel the, the way you present it, when it comes to numbers, you know, people aren't, aren't daft, and I think we should show moving averages. I think when you show the zigzags, you know, they're going to look for... what You know, if it was a business case, you'd use a moving average in any case. It's minor, but, I, you know, I think people are simple. They're not stupid, but they need to we see it simply. Um, the second thing is um, there's a huge difference between, I don't know the figures now, some, some years since I looked at it, but between, say, the uh, American output of rubbish and carbon dioxide, the Australians and the Europeans come behind those and are significantly better, although still bad. Um, so there's a slight difference there. And when you compare the numbers of people, say, in the UK to, say, to the States, unless we get people like Trump on board, you know, yes. well, we could be... Okay. So there's two, two, there's lots of different countries have different responsibilities. Um, Australia's carbon footprint per capita is about twice in the UK. It's up at 24, 25 um, tonnes per person per year. So, and the USA, it's similar. Um, different, yeah, absolutely. There's different differences in different countries. But essentially, prosperous people, wherever you happen to live, are responsible for the most part of climate change. So prosperous people, we're all prosperous people. We are the ones that can make a difference. Now, I take your point about moving averages. Um, I'm just not sure what is the best way. People who are, uh, are, are good with numbers find that, um, that helpful. Uh, I don't know. I, 
Personally, I find images helpful, which is why I quite like this, because moving averages, this is essentially what that line is doing. Yes, there is a wiggly line, and, but visually I put that wiggly line in the right place using my eyes rather than... Yeah, well, I don't know what, I don't know what the... Um, I don't know, let's pick straw poll. Hands up if you prefer, uh, if you like this as a visual image. It's quite popular. Um, <laughs> um, <I> okay. <laughs> okay, fine. So, next question over there. Hello. Um, I'm interested in the volcanoes. Oh, good. And whether sulfuric acid is the only thing that they emit that might help cool the atmosphere. Right. So, volcanoes, whether it's, just, whether it's sulfuric acid, it's the only thing. Well, volcanoes um, get a pretty bad reputation because, you know, Vesuvius and all that. And they, of course, they emit lots of ash and dust and crap and stuff. Um, so that's why we don't want to emulate volcanoes exactly. All we want to do is to take those, that, the volatile stuff that, that's invisible, uh, the, the, the vapour out of the volcano. And that's a tiny, tiny, tiny proportion of the trillions of zillions of tonnes of stuff that comes out of a volcano. So we're not trying to emulate a volcano 100% because that's going to create a real mess. So it's only the, uh, the 10 million tonnes a year of, um, of the, the, the volatile component. And by the way, I don't think sulfuric acid is um, the right way to go. And I don't think, generally speaking, I think people have realised that that's too risky. So there are other... There are other um, Materials, titanium dioxide is probably the most likely one. That's what you have in sun cream. And it's probably, if we're going to do this stratospheric aerosol stuff, it won't be sulfuric acid, just to set your mind at <laughs> It is actually the thing that also helped to cause the destruction of the ozone layer, which happens to be yes. in the stratosphere, so it is one to be a bit careful of. Yes, so over there and the one up there. Uh, on a uh, positive note, do you think there's any prospect of uh, some technological process being developed which uses carbon dioxide as a material that we actually want yeah, well rather than a, a waste that well has to get buried or worried about? You know, uh, there doesn't seem to be any, uh, <coughs> anything going on. Is there any prospect, do you think, that might happen? Well, so that's, that's a... <laughs> I, I was very depressed when I read um, an article in the uh, Institution of Mechanical Engineers about someone who's come up with a neat idea of capturing carbon dioxide and then using the CO2 in carbonated drinks. <laughs> Just think about it for a while. When was the last time when you, when you poured yourself a glass of some carbonated drink that you sequestered the bubbles? You, you put the <laughs> CO2. So it's obviously a nuts idea, but the mindset is right. What can we use the CO2 for? Now, 35 billion tonnes a year is a lot of stuff. But it turns out that we do use 35 billion tonnes, not that much, but we do use perhaps 5 million billion tonnes a year of concrete. Concrete is a big CO2 um, emitter. Now, calcium carbonate, if we can lock CO2 into rock and use solid material for building, well, that'd be great. The only problem is that the, um, there's just not enough to... Uh, there isn't enough of that stuff. We are emitting CO2 at such a rate. But 
yes, you're right. We've got to be doing every little bit we can. Yeah. So we want to come up with processes that lock the CO2 up as a solid and then use that solid as a building material. That'd be great. Yes, we should do it. <laughs> but it's just going to take time to get us to, that, to, to doing that. We've got to get on with it quickly. And it will still... It'll, it'll only make a dent on that 35 billion tonne. Sure. Two messages. The 35 billion tonnes has got to come down to 5 billion in the next 10 years. Because <coughs> we can make a dent on 5 billion. We can't make a dent on 35 billion. So yes, let's do all the denting we can and let's stop emitting as much as we currently are. Okay, so we have two minutes left and we have two people with microphones. So I'm going to ask you if you can say very quickly what your two questions are. We'll take them together and you'll have about a minute to answer them. Okay, so first of all, gentlemen up there. Hi, thank you. Um, one of my thoughts was, do the, the concepts of geoengineering solutions, do they allow people off the hook for the controlling of emissions? Perfect question. <laughs> great question that you had to answer in 30 seconds. Okay, great. And then... Dents are... So well, given the, the, the kind of little dents, does it make any difference, actually, if you're veggie or vegan, or are you just deluding yourself that that's any use in this particular respect? Well, okay, here yeah. you've got, you got one and a half minutes. Go. Yeah, so it does make a difference. You, you, it, we have to stop a lifestyle that emits CO2. And everything that we do as individuals, yes, really important. And I think that the food, yeah. food, this, food is a big deal. Globally, it's a big deal. So if we can, if we can be responsible with food, absolutely. Um, the question about um, what's called the moral hazard... If we come up with geoengineering, the technology, then won't that mean that lets the, uh, the oil companies off the hook and so we can just carry on burning fossil fuels because there's a solution? Yeah, that's right. If you have a lung transplant, I suppose you can carry on smoking. Um, you know, we've got to be... We, we've got to realise that the answer to that question is no. That isn't how it works. There's no point. There's no point in doing geoengineering and carry on with business as usual. That doesn't work. So, yeah, look, we've got to be... Well, we've got to have leadership on this, and that's not what we've got at the moment. <laughs> and the perfect stop. <laughs> Thank you very much, Hugh. That was great.